You can contribute to the Historian's Podcast by visiting the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. This is Stephen Regal. I'm the author of Finding Judge Crater, which is the first nonfiction account of a very famous missing persons case, a judge who disappeared from the middle of Broadway, got into a taxi cab in August 1930, and literally disappeared from the face of the earth. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore, attorney and former New York City federal prosecutor Stephen Regal joins us. He explores a mystery from 90 years ago, the disappearance of Judge Crater. Uh, Stephen Regal is author of Finding Judge Crater, A Life and Phenomenal Disappearance in Jazz Age New York, published by Syracuse University Press. I've heard about this um, mystery about Judge Crater, but I just asked my producer, uh, Dave Green, before we started. He had not heard of it, and I'm I'm, I was wondering, how well-known is the disappearance of Judge Crater these days? Well, these days, as you said, 90 years after <laughs> the fact, there is certainly less awareness of the case. If you talk to anyone who was uh, born or, or alive in uh, at the time of Crater's disappearance in 1930, or for years afterwards, this was the preeminent missing persons case, and everyone had heard of it. Became the subject of jokes by uh, Groucho Marx and other comedians. It appeared in uh, plays, movies. So, so anyway, it was extremely people were, were very much aware of it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, nine, again, 90 days, 90 years afterwards, um, it has less awareness. Is, is this what brought you to it? I mean, you'd heard about it, or, or why did you uh, decide on this topic for what I believe you said is your first book? A combination of things got me started. In New York City, until probably the end of the 1980s, on the anniversary of Crater's disappearance, they, the newspapers, especially the New York Times, would, would have an article each year, something about the case. And I came across those, and I believe that there was an article in New York Magazine back in the 1980s about the case. And it sounded interesting, and it sounded it appealed to me because of my interest in history, and it was a very colorful period in New York City history, um, the mm-hmm. 1920s, the Jazz Age, the Roaring Twenties. And so that, given my historical interests, sort of made me more interested. And then again, there hasn't been any uh, book or, or account explaining what happened to the judge or why, and mm-hmm. so it was kind of like a detective thing. I wanted to yeah. now, it, see if I... Does your mm-hmm. book make the big reveal? I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't sound like you've come up with, quote-unquote, the answer to what happened to Judge Crater. Well, it's a good question. The answer or a solution, I, uh, it can't go that far, um, given that 
his body has never been discovered. Uh, there's been no firsthand uh, in, information from a, a source about that knew what happened to him. So uh, all that can be done at this point, rather than give a solution to the case, is the way I describe in the book is it's kind of an educated hy- hypothesis based on all the evidence. And I do, I do come to a, con- uh, a hypothesis, and I think the book shows, one going through all the evidence of the case, that there's can really be, uh, you know, I, I think all the evidence ties up to the conclusion of who I, um, who, who, what happened to Crater, and right. and and why. Um, it it does. It sounds been, like you I, don't. In, uh, and this is true for a lot of authors. It sounds like you don't want to tell us what, what you're driving at. <laughs> no, I, I'd rather. Uh, keep that as a surprise. Um, But let me just add, um, there have been many theories of the judge's disappearance, and they can broadly be divided into that he voluntarily disappeared to avoid a scandal. There's another theory that he went off with a chorus girl that he and took up a new name. There are other theories that he killed himself. Uh, versus the involuntary explanations. Some obviously, some third party did them in, and I think where my book may be unique is it basically the answer or the the hypothesis that that is that is presented is a combination of the two. Um, I, he, in other words, he disappeared both because he wanted to, and he, there were people who didn't want him to. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a combination of those two um, explanations. Which, um, if you'll indulge me, I went through the internet sources or whatever, just one or two, and came up with sort of a chronology of what's generally known. He's originally from Easton, Pennsylvania. He finally, after disappearing in 1930, was finally declared dead by the courts in 1939. And just before he disappeared, he was with his wife at a summer home in Maine when he told her he had to go back to New York City. Is that sort of true so far? Right. That's all totally accurate. But when he went to New York City, he didn't actually stay there. He went with one of his chorus girls. He went with his mistress, Sally Lou Ritzy, to Atlantic City? No, that's a little inaccurate. The trip, well, I, Sally Ru, Lou Ritzy, or Ritz, it's sometimes written, was one of the last people to see him. Uh, she had dinner with him. Uh, together with a man called William Klein, who is the general counsel of the Schubert Brothers uh, theatrical organization. And so so that was the night of his disappearance that he got together with uh, Sally Lou. The trip to the Jersey Shore occurred before he came back from Maine 
to New York City. Uh, It it happened, and it wasn't with Sally Lou Ritzy. It was with other other women, escorts. Um, But it was at, at, he disappeared September 6th. He went to the Jersey Shore, Atlantic City, at the last week in August, right before. Oh, he disappeared in September? I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. August 6th. August, and his, he was at Atlantic City the last week in July. And I'm sorry, one of the things mistake. that kind of intrigued me is in my family, there, some of the people are named Has, H-A-A-S. And according to one account, the restaurant that he and that other lawyer and uh, Sally Lou Ritzy were having dinner was Billy Has's Chop House. I, does that right. figure in any of your stories? Yes, that that's uh, mentioned many times in the book. Billy Haas was the proprietor of this Chop House that Crater had his last meal in and actually knew Crater well because Crater, this was his regular restaurant to dine in. And on other nights that summer, he had come in with uh, some of his chorus girlfriends. Um, And Haas, uh, so Haas knew him well. And on the evening of his disappearance, Haas told the police that he looked like he didn't look himself, that he looked sort of uh, depressed and distraught. And he even asked Crater whether that, that something seemed to be wrong with him, with Crater. And Crater sloughed it off by saying it was his, maybe it was his um, choker collar that was making him look mm. different, which was, it was sort of ridiculous because he wore the choker collar for 20 years, which was to hide his, his skinny neck. So, so Haas, Haas's restaurant is important because that's where Crater disappeared from outside. And, and he left um, the restaurant and got into a taxi? Or what is believed? Because yeah, I mean, it um, all would be the testimony of other people. Yeah. No, uh, from the police records, it's pretty clear that he got in the taxi. I know um, the one other nonfiction account of the book, Richard Toffel's Vanishing Point, says suggests that it was Klein and Sally Lou Ritzy who got into the taxi cab and Crater who walked away. And and that was reported in some of the papers. But from the police uh, files, it's verified that it was Crater that got into the taxi that night. Mm. And Sally Lou Ritzy and Klein walked back uh, to the Schubert's office, uh, which was on West 44th Street, a block away or so. Now, what, what kind of judge was Judge Crater? I mean... What what courts did he serve in? And maybe also what kind of judge was he? He was a Supreme Court judge, which people immediately think of, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, In fact, in the New York court system, it's the trial court, but it's called the Supreme Court for some historical 
reason. And it sounds like uh, he dealt with only civil cases, not criminal cases? Well, he, right. And I should say, he had just been made a judge, um, uh, which was one of the un- unusual things about his disappearance. He um, had only been appointed to a vacancy, a temporary appointment, in April of that year, about four months before he disappeared. And so he wasn't a judge or a justice, as it's formally called, for very long. He, before then, was a very prominent lawyer and a very successful lawyer in New York City. And the book also, um, he was very involved in Tammany Hall, which is um, the political machine that was that basically ran the city back then. And so a lot of the book is addressed to Tammany Hall and Crater's role in it. He uh, became an officer of a, a Tammany club. Each, each dis- assembly district had a Tammany mm-hmm. club, and he became involved in a Tammany club up in Harlem. And this was a time when Harlem was an undergoing many changes, but he was also became a lawyer for Tammany Hall, representing Tammany Hall in court. So Who he, he rose judge? Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> and he figures prominently also. Um, he was at that time uh, the governor of New York. He had been elected in 1928. And he kind of crosses Crater's path uh, quite a bit in the book. He was the one that was appointed Crater to the bench and subsequently uh, was accused of maybe being paid off. He also was running for re-election that fall, which uh, back then it was a two-year gubernatorial Mm -hmm. term. And he was running for re-election in uh, November 1930, which was three months after the disappearance. And the Crater story and other uh, Tammany scandals were very important because um, to Roosevelt's campaign, because he basically had he was eyeing running for president in 1932. And he had to have a very convincing uh, re-election victory that fall. And Crater's disappearance and some other Tammany scandals blew up that summer. Mm-hmm. And so the whole fall campaign was over Tammany corruption. Mm-hmm. And now and Roosevelt Ru- seems to mm-hmm. have survived that. But what happened to the the mayor of New York? Well, I think it was mayor about this time. Is Jimmy Walker? He had yeah, to resign. Jimmy, Jimmy Walker, the night mayor, um, also Tammany's mayor. He he was very prominent. Um, he got involved in the investigation uh, for for Crater. He it also caused some scandals in his administration because. Uh, certain of his cabinet had to um, had to resign because of various scandals that were happening at the time, 
And this was before Samuel Seabury's investigation, which began that fall. And that, the Seabury investigation was ultimately what got Mayor Walker to uh, force to resign in 1932. Um, so this was the first big scandal of Mayor Walker's administration. You've served as a, as a, a justice, or you? Uh, um, is as there a, a connection as there? As a pro- prosecutor. Um, I was a federal prosecutor um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office. But I, I do, one, one of the fascinating things to the book for me was um, just, uh, well, I, pract- I have practiced in the court where Crater was a justice briefly, and he practiced. Um, a lot of the, the, the buildings are still in existence. Uh, for example, the, the club, uh, the Tammany Club in, up in Harlem, is uh, was located in a brownstone up on the 123rd Street, and I've been to the brownstone and walked through it. Um, not surprisingly, it's now being made into a condo, <laughs> which much of New York City seems to be being made into these days. Uh, but just to actually, you know, walk in the building and and. Uh, I, I don't know. It's something just really struck me about that. About you know that there was that New York has real history. It, it mm. and, and, and you and, mentioned um, at the beginning that you were able to consult records of the police department. And I think they're missing persons bureau. How did you do that? And uh, well, I mean, it's sort of like a modern. I don't know if it's a modern question. Um, did the cops do a good job investigating this? Well, that's that's again. You're hitting on all all the themes of my book. Well, first of all, I, I got access to their records through a Freedom of Information Law request, and as I said, they're they're not extensive. They're basically a banker's box full of um, records, but they have the forms that detectives completed at the end of each day uh, in there, and basically discuss their investigation. The NYPD used to be an arm of Tammany Hall, maybe 20 years before. The NYPD, by 1930, had a commissioner, one of the first independent commissioner, police commissioners, who weren't appointed, that were you know people who were Tammany-affiliated. So it had a... And it was starting to come out from under Tammany's domination. So it wasn't political from what I could see from the, the, the internal mm-hmm. records. From what I can see, a very you know active and independent investigation of the disappearance. There also, though, at the time, a grand jury was seated to investigate the crater uh, disappearance disappearance, which is very unusual. Uh, grand juries usually seated when there's a suspect. This was a grand jury into his investigation with no suspects, and it was headed by the district attorney at the time, Thomas Crane, who was a Tammany 
loyalist. So there have been, and I think it's true, there have been many accusations that the grand jury was kind of corrupted, that they didn't want to find out what happened to Crater. Uh, mm. Because they were they were worried it would implicate Tammany Hall or Mayor Walker, and but the police department itself, I do not think was subject to those same pressures. I, now, I think they uh, I, I mm. no, and he comes from my little city in upstate New York. The pre- presidential historian David Petruja, who writes other books. In fact, he wrote a book about Arnold Rothstein, a well-known corrupt individual, who apparently, and I asked David if if he thought there were connections between the two cases. He said he didn't really think that much. What what do you think? I mean, was Rothstein involved in this at all? Yeah, I've read David's book, and it's referred to in my book. Arnold Rothstein was... um, shot in 1928 and died, you know, days later. At that time, which was two years before the, there was a lot of question about the police department. And um, he, his case was another that I've, from what I've read, there were concerns that they really didn't want to find out what happened to Rothstein uh, because he had a lot of contacts in the NYPD and among prominent politicians. But no, I mean, to answer your question, I I do not believe there's any direct link, but it was just the NYPD, even though it was only two years before, was then more under Tammany's um, control. What happened to to a crater's widow? That's also a whole chapter in the book, and and she appears uh, throughout Stella Crater. She, at the start of his disappearance, was not very helpful. Um, She requested the police's uh, help, but um, she stayed up in her um, cabin in Maine for the first six months of the disappearance and refused to come back to the city. So there there are a lot of questions about how cooperative she was. Um, from the police files, their conclusion was she was a homebody and that Crater, that Crater didn't confide in her. As developed in my book, I think she knew more than people gave her credit to. Mm. And I think she maintained her silence. For, for about, in 1937, she started to talk. And that was when she wanted to have her, her husband declared dead, uh, which, as you said, was not until 1939. And, and therefore, had, when he was, he was declared dead, she could get his life insurance, is my understanding. Right. It's, but there was a double indemnity policy. Uh, by this time, she, although Crater left her some money, it wasn't a big estate, and she was on hard times by this. And and so part of the reason I think she came out and with loud interviews, in which she began to say more, and things that showed that she really did know what was going on, was she wanted to collect under the double indemnity policy, you know, for which you have to prove that 
crater was killed. Ah. And so they didn't prove so that, did they? They tried to. Uh, she had a lawyer at the time who advanced some theories, and they were try and did ultimately uh, go to court and say that Crater was killed. But the problem was the theory that the lawyer advanced was just kind of wacko. Mm. It it had to do with another chorus girl um, mm. who knew Crater, you know, uh, faintly, but. There's nothing else to suggest that she was involved in his disappearance. Have you ever thought of, I think the phrase they used to use in the old comedy shows was, have you ever thought of pulling a crater? <laughs> no, no, but that you're right. That was a, a, one of the terms or another famous one of comics was uh, Judge Crater, call your office. That's right. what that during the 30s, that was also a big joke. To pull a crater, still um, not anymore, but in the up to maybe the 60s or 70s, it was still used. Um, I, strangely, mainly in baseball stories, that when a hitter hits a, a slump kind of mysteriously for no reason, um, they they used to call it pulling a crater, or mm. yeah, for some reason I, I don't know why, it seemed to last longest in those type of stories. That's Stephen Regal, who's author of the book Finding Judge Crater: A Life and Phenomenal Disappearance in Jazz Age New York. And uh, Dave Green's uh, joining us. I said at the beginning of the interview. Uh, with Mr. Eagle, that um, I remember stories about Judge Crater. I seem to remember my father, for some reason, talking about it, but it, it, you don't remember it at all. Is that is that true? I seem to be a complete blank on this one, Bob. I, I do apologize, but I'm out to lunch. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, I'm sure that's true for thousands of our listeners. They did not ever hear of a Judge Crater. What Interests me was what we were just talking about with uh, Stephen Regal. The Judge Crater story is so unusual that it's been picked up in a lot of media over the years. In fact, on the internet, you can find references, um, for example, to you know, pull a crater or uh, just call your office Judge Crater or something like that. But in on television... There was an episode of MASH called Bless You, Hawkeye, in which Colonel Potter, and remember, Colonel Potter was always an older, you know, he was an older gentleman than the other soldiers. He says the keys to the lab have been pulling a Judge Crater. In other words, they've disappeared. So Hawkeye, anyway, Dave, knew what, what we were talking about with the uh, Judge Crater. Yeah, well, that's because the writers informed him beforehand, Bob. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. And in the Green Acres episode, not guilty, I don't really know Green Acres that well, but Mr. Haney, speaking to his bloodhound, says, come on, Clarence, let's see if we can pick up on Judge Crater's trail. So I wonder, I wonder why the Hollywood writers obviously picked up on that. You know what? They were probably, uh, those writers who wrote that into those different episodes were probably all born in New York City. 
that's true. Uh, or they had some sort of reason to be in New York City. The Dick Van Dyke show, uh, an episode called Very Old Shoes, Very Old Rice, the judge performing uh, Rob and Laura Petrie's wedding ceremony is named Judge Krata, K-R-A-T-A, not Crater. And Rob misunderstands him to say he was Judge Crater and uh, questions the judge who makes a joke about the fact that his name was similar to the, uh, well, anyway. The other episode uh, was of the Golden Girls, but they don't have time to talk about it. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>